when I was getting <clears throat> ready for this retreat, I pulled out some notes I had that had been the, the basis of a talk on mindfulness that I gave, prepared, or got ready about 10 years ago. And I looked in the notes at the working definition of mindfulness I had at that time. And the working definition I had of mindfulness at that time was a, a combination or a blend of bare attention and clear comprehension. Bare attention and clear comprehension. Has anybody got any problems with that as a working definition? I do. <laughs> I do. It was so interesting, so startling for me to read those notes and then to think, well, what would be my current working definition of mindfulness? And what I came up with was the capacity and the willingness to stand equally near all experience with wakefulness, discernment, curiosity, and kindness. You can see my definitions got a lot longer. If, if I talk about in another 10 years, <laughs> it might have turned into a paragraph. And kind of what I really saw for myself was sort of incomplete or inadequate in my first working definition. I will talk a little bit about in the talk tonight. But looking or putting these two working definitions side by side actually really made me appreciate and realize what an ongoing path this is to both understand what mindfulness is and to understand how it actually works to bring about the kind of changes and transformations that we see perhaps in ourselves and in others. So this evening I want to mostly reflect on this discourse or teaching that we've already mentioned, the Satipatthana Sutta, which is really the origin of all forms of insight meditation and which really all forms of mindfulness-based applications actually draw on this teaching. And in truth, this is such a huge discourse that you know it would take many, many days actually to really unravel it completely. So tonight I'm just focusing on, on just some, uh, just a few aspects of it. But what is really deeply emphasized in this discourse on satipatthana or mindfulness is the way in which it talks about mindfulness as being very central to the path of liberating the heart from confusion and sorrow. Now, sati patana, sati is sometimes, it's, it's sometimes translated as to place mindfulness, to attend or to be present with mindfulness, or sometimes sati is translated as to establish mindfulness within, sometimes translated as to stand near to, to stand by. So this word sati 
often translated simply as mindfulness, has so many different dimensions. Now, this discourse actually begins with a pretty powerful statement where the Buddha says, there is, he says, bhikkhus, but practitioners, there is practitioners, the direct path for the purification of beings, for the surmounting of sorrow and despair, for the disappearance of pain and grief, for attaining the way for the realization of liberation, namely the four sati patanas. Now the four sati patanas are actually the places that we establish mindfulness within, and these will all be very familiar to, to you. Establishing mindfulness within the body, within feeling, within states of mind or emotions, and within everything that arises and appears in experience. The beginning of this discourse goes on. What are the four? A practitioner abides contemplating the body as the body, ardent, fully aware, and mindful. Having put away covetousness and grief for the world, he or she abides, contemplates feelings as feelings, mind as mind, mind objects as mind objects. Now, in this retreat that we undertake here, in the practice we undertake here, it's pretty much dedicated to this contemplation. And, of course, the beginning of this discourse ends with some equally powerful words where the Buddha says, if anyone should develop these four foundations for seven years, for seven months, for seven weeks, even for seven days, they will come to know direct and profound liberation. It's quite a promise. Now, what the Satipatthana Discourse describes is a journey that is not only liberating, but I think for most people it's also deeply challenging. But it is a teaching, and the path that is taught within it really in a way holds the whole of the Buddhist teaching. And I think in the time and in the context that this teaching was offered, It was a very radical teaching, and in many ways, in our time and culture, I think it's equally a radical teaching. I think it's important to appreciate the context of this teaching. Some of you may know, but 2,600 years ago, when when Siddhartha was searching for a way to the end of suffering, He very much grew up in a spiritual and a religious climate that more or less emphasized transcendence as the path to liberation. Transcendence of the body, of mind, of feeling, of emotions, of relationship. In fact, pretty much all of life as we would know it and recognized it was kind of seemed to be a problem, an obstacle to freedom as a sort of hindrance to be overcome or to be suppressed or to be annihilated. And in the early years of his own path, 
Siddhartha pretty much practiced this core culture and ethos. It pretty much guided his path. So, you know, he spent years um, starving and abusing his body, left his family, uh, his position, went to pretty great lengths, actually, to suppress, suppress his mind and to disconnect from the world. Now, when we read the stories or hear the stories of the kind of extremes that he went to in his time, we, we might feel, well, you know, it's kind of like that's very culturally placed. But actually, um, it's not an entirely alien ethos in our culture. There are people who go to great lengths to suppress and annihilate their bodies, harm their bodies, abuse their bodies in different ways. People go to great lengths to suppress, to try and annihilate their emotions, their thoughts, their feelings. How many people do we hear or listen to ourselves saying, if only I had a different life, if only I had a different body, if only I had a different mind or different emotions, you know, my, my life would be happy, I would be lovable. I think when we look at the human psyche, it, it becomes kind of apparent that there's a certain timelessness to aversion, isn't there? A certain timelessness to pushing away. When we see in our own experience, when we meet something that is unpleasant or difficult or challenging, how it feels almost a kind of like a, a physiological movement, almost to say no, to, to push away, to resist in some sense. Now, there were several turning points, I think, in Siddhartha's journey. He didn't entirely give up the notion of transcendence, but actually spoke about transcending suffering, transcending distress and torment and struggle. But there were a couple of turning points in, in Siddhartha's journey um, which later very much got translated or somehow integrated into the path and the teaching in a whole range of ways. I mean, certainly one turning point as we hear it from the stories is that when Siddhartha lay near death after having so long starved himself in pursuit of this transcendence, that someone, a young woman came along and offered him some very simple food which he took. And he talked about it as a moment of waking up, of the need to care for what had previously been rejected. And then there was, there was another significant turning point we hear in the stories when Siddhartha talks about after all these years of struggle of trying to suppress his mind and reach some distant goal, that he remembered a time as, as a young boy when he was sitting on a hillside overlooking his father's land and saw a farmer plowing his field. And he remembered that there had arisen in him in those moments quite unexpectedly and quite unbidden this very, this very deep inwardly generated quality of a, a very sublime peace and contentment and well-being. And that was also an insight that very much being sort of integrated into the path, the questioning of how much we pursue what we're looking for 
through endlessly rearranging the conditions of our world, or how much we start to connect with our own inner capacity for happiness, our inner capacity for peace, for joy, for understanding. And Siddhartha, in his own struggles with aversion, I think in, in many ways came to realize the futility, in a way, the futility, never mind, the painfulness of resistance. Nagarjuna is one of the great, great teachers of the past. He, he once wrote, he said, what do you do with a life that doesn't go away? And it very much points to the same kind of understanding. And of course, the path of insight, the path of mindfulness, is that we, our first step is to stop wanting it to go away. What Siddhartha really came to understand was that the classroom of awakening and the classroom of compassion and the classroom of kindness really lay within... <coughs> everything that he had previously disdained and rejected and fled from. And in ceasing that condemnation, ceasing to, to judge and to fear, this was described as a very crucial change of attitude that in many ways lies at the heart of wise mindfulness. That the idea of problems, obstacles, impossibilities, I think is seen very differently in the light of wise mindfulness. The experiences of pain and sorrow and suffering are embraced in a different way. Not as imperfections to be fixed or to get got rid of. Not as personal failures. Also, in that light of wise mindfulness, the end of struggle and sorrow is not projected into some distant, far-off moment. Mindfulness is a path, in a way, to the present, learning what it means to bring clarity into places of confusion, learning what it means to cultivate peace in the midst of agitation, learning what it means to bring compassion into the very midst of the difficult, to bring intimacy into the very places of alienation. Now the Satipatthana Sutta begins with a very simple premise, a very simple statement of acknowledging that there is sorrow, there is struggle, there is grief in this world, in this life, and that there is a freedom the possibility of freedom from struggle and suffering and grief. As I mentioned last night, when the Buddha encapsulated his teaching in those simple lines that I teach just one thing, that there is suffering and there is an end of suffering. It's very important to understand what is meant by suffering here. Because clearly there is difficulty in this life that simply comes with being born. Our bodies age, there is illness, there are conditions we cannot control, things change the ways, sometimes ways that are very unexpected and unwelcome. 
Mindfulness is not a kind of magic broom to sweep away all of this. But the kind of suffering that is really spoken about in this teaching, it's really spoken about in passive mindfulness, is the kind of second layer of emotional and psychological distress that is often a reaction to that which actually is simply life, that we cannot find it difficult to be with, difficult to embrace. is the kind of struggle and suffering that is born of aversion and fear and anxiety and selfing and confusion. Now, in the context of the Satipatthana Sutta, mindfulness is not a destination. It's not an end in itself. Rather, mind, wise, wise mindfulness is the very ground and the very conditions upon which insight grows, upon which understanding grows. And it is that insight or understanding or that capacity for us to align our hearts with the simple truths, the actualities of every moment, the insight that allows that alignment to take place, that this is the means to the end of suffering. But for that alignment to take place, for that understanding to take place, in a way, it's a putting down of the endless argument with the way things actually are. That alignment requires a space of mindfulness. Now, the reason why I found my former working definition of mindfulness inadequate is, lies first with this phrase of bare attention. Now, I'm not convinced that there is such a thing as bare attention. seems to me that attention is always flavored by something, that there is skillful attention and there is unskillful attention. A shoplifter has remarkable attention capacities. Burglars are really good at attention. We can also cultivate very wholesome attention. We need attention to learn anything. You know, we need attention to study. You, you need attention to listen. But attention is always being flavored by a whole underground world of motivations, intentions, tendencies, beliefs, it's going to either be skillful or unskillful. Now, I personally have a feeling that the word mindfulness and the word attention often gets confused. Now, attention is certainly one of the factors of mindfulness. But actually, mindfulness, certainly in, in, in the Buddhist teaching, and I think if we look at it very carefully in mindfulness-based applications, mindfulness has much more depth than simply the capacity to pay attention. That certainly in, in Buddhist teaching, wise, wise mindfulness, it, it kind of lo- looks backwards and it draws upon ethics, upon a commitment to non-harming. That wise mindfulness very much draws upon an attitudinal sense of kindness, of friendliness, that within mindfulness there are qualities of investigation, there are qualities of energy 
and there are qualities of joy and equanimity. These are all part of the fabric of certainly what is described as mindfulness in this teaching. And I think when you look at how mindfulness is used in mindfulness-based applications, we're not just teaching people to pay attention. We're actually teaching people a very, very different way of being with whatever arises moment to moment. Attention is part of it, but what are we actually doing in mindfulness? Well, I think what we're learning, actually, is to bring a very clear and calm way of being present to every moment of experience. Not judging, not reacting. And the purpose of that clear and calm present is actually to illuminate the moment. If I give you an example of how that works, years ago I was invited to teach in the desert in in the U.S., and I'd heard so many grand stories about the desert that I was quite keen to go. And I arrived at night, and I woke up in the morning filled with this enthusiasm, you know, see the desert. And I walked out, and I looked around, and my first thought was, it's brown. It's just brown. And then I realized that the longer I spent there and the more closely I looked, it's like the desert really came alive. There were so many hues, so many shades of color as the day changed in the desert and the sunlight changed, that there was so much life within the desert. And don't you just discover that in practice too? I mean, you know what it's like to go outside into a walking meditation and go up and down your walking path with a mind that's filled with busyness and preoccupation, you know. And then the bell goes and you could come inside and you realize, you know, you've hardly seen or been touched by a single thing. And you could go outside in exactly the same walking path with mindfulness, with really that intention to see and to be present. And somehow you, you do see, we do see. We're touched by the colors. We're touched by what we see in front of us. We actually really see. Now, the difference is not the actual place or the walking path. Of course, the difference is how we are present. Now, this, that quality, that quality is what is turned inwardly to the body, to emotions, to thoughts, to, to moods, to mental states, to how we listen, that same quality of being present. And what happens is, isn't it true, the body comes alive in ways that we haven't noticed. We start to notice the thoughts. We start to be more attuned to the moods, to the emotions that are there. It's almost like everything that has been sort of shrouded in a kind of camouflage of unconsciousness suddenly becomes conscious. It's illuminated by that quality of presence. What we are also undertaking, of course, in that cultivation of wise mindfulness is this movement from a world, a life governed by impulse, into clear intention. What is also happening for us is that we're beginning to discern the difference between what is concept and what is actuality, what is the story about the moment, And what is the moment? 
One of my first teachers once said this very simple line to me, which I still, I continue to find so startling. He said, the thought of your mother is not your mother. Ah. We could kind of expand that. The thought of myself may not actually be the whole of myself. You know, the thought I have about another person may not be the whole of another person. The thought I have about this experience may not actually describe the whole of this experience. Another aspect, I think, of wise mindfulness which actually brings its depth is this quality, I think, embedded within it of investigation. To understand the nature of what we see, how it arises, how it comes into being, how our world is being shaped moment to moment. To understand that very experientially, to begin to be able to discern in ourselves, in our own experience, what leads to struggle and what leads to the end of struggle. I want to pick up, if I can, on just a couple, a few of the refrains that I've stressed within the Satipatthana Sutta that I feel are particularly significant in this path and in this practice. Um, And we have to actually remember that part, part of this practice is context that the attitude is crucial. So the first of these, the teaching, this teaching begins with to contemplate the body as the body. Sometimes it's framed as to contemplate the body in the body. To contemplate feeling as feeling. To contemplate the mind as the mind. And then it goes on to say this really weird phrase, having put away covetousness and grief for the world. Now that, that's the piece I want to look at, which is an incredibly awkward translation. But it's really saying to contemplate the body, contemplate feeling, contemplate mind, and everything that arises, having put up down aversion or ill will and craving. So it is moving towards a very different way of being with everything that we experience. Now, I think it is so important to appreciate the power that both craving and aversion have to distort our experience and to create struggle. You probably already notice in our lives how we go through the world, you know, I want this, I don't want this, I like this, I hate this, you know, how much we're governed by this kind of movement towards and the movement away from. And actually that makes us pretty hostage to the world of conditions. It makes us agitated. Now, a significant part of wise mindfulness is learning to soften those energies of craving and aversion, should and should not. Now, it actually has pretty big implications, I think. Like, what happens when we put down craving and aversion? There's no implication that it leaves a vacuum behind it, that it leaves us indifferent. Instead, 
putting that down, those energies of craving and aversion, is what actually allows to emerge what the Buddha described as the two primary, two of the three primary liberating intentions. One of them, kindness, friendliness, and the other, compassion. Because we really see, I think, in our own experience, how this craving and aversion, this endless agitation, tends to suffocate friendliness or kindness and compassion. So these are actually, these two qualities, in my understanding, are actually the flavor of wise mindfulness. That it's affectionate, it's tender, it's kind. Instead of, of resistance, instead of, of the pleasant and the unpleasant being greeted with resistance or, or wanting, they are actually befriended. They are actually embraced with warmth, with interest. It is a movement towards befriending, which I think for most people is such a powerful shift in attitude and mindfulness. And if I think of the one transforming quality in most people that they learn through mindfulness, it is actually this movement from aversion to befriending. There is something so radically freeing in that. Because what we push away, we see we are actually a prisoner of. What we resist and push away is suddenly given the power to really govern the well-being of our hearts. Now, another line, another of the lines that's repeated quite frequently in the discourse is to abide independent, not clinging to anything. Now, this abiding independent does not suggest to me um, an attitude of separation or disconnection. But instead, this capacity to abide independent, not clinging to anything, is an exploration of what it means to be ungoverned. And the beginning of the understanding that it is not the thoughts or the emotions or the feelings or the sensations that create such terrible feelings in themselves of being imprisoned or, or governed, but that it is actually the clinging and the grasping and the holding that create, that is a direct creator of suffering and struggle. Essentially, if we look at our experience, we see that what we cling to in any moment actually forms and shapes our mind, and in a very real way, shapes our world. If you cling, if there's clinging to a thought, we become the thinker. If there's an identification, a clinging with a sensation or pain, I become the sufferer. If there's an identification, a grasping hold of a thought of anxiety or worry, I become anxious. We can feel those shifts moment to moment and how little freedom there feels within it. So alongside these two primary intentions and qualities of kindness and compassion held within this teaching... There is a third intention and a third quality which initially sounds 
kind of cold. And it is the intention or the quality of renunciation. It's not a word we use in English very much. In fact, we hear that word in English and often sends shivers up our spine as if it, you know, means some kind of disconnection or some kind of austerity or or loss. But that's actually not how it's meant in this teaching. One of my first teachers once said to me that letting go is the greatest gift of compassion that you can offer to yourself. It's really talking about the the letting go, not of the world, not of things, not of people, but of letting go of this tendency to cling and to identify, which creates such contractedness and such tightness and such distress. Now, I think this is really an important intention to look at because it's one that's so easily misunderstood because I see so many people in practice and I see so many people in mindfulness trainings, who spend hours and days and weeks and months and years shouting at themselves to let go and feeling a failure when it just doesn't seem to work and then shouting at themselves louder, I really need to let go, I really need to let go of this. And I must say in my own practice, my own understanding, I've so much reframed this and and really actually come to see that I I probably have never I probably have never let go of a single thing in my entire life. I'm so happy to be able to say that. Because it's such a delusion, I think, to think that somehow I am in charge of letting go. You know, that it's up to me. Well, if we hold that delusion, of course, we are destined for failure and we're destined for self-judgment. It's like, it's also, the other side of that coin is saying, I cling and I grasp, as if I woke up this morning and decided it's a great day to cling and grasp hold of whatever arises. Of course we didn't. What I do see instead... I think it's more true to say that what we do in this practice and what we do in mindfulness is that we cultivate the conditions, there is the cultivate of the condition, cultivation of the conditions that allow letting go to happen. The conditions that allow letting go or renunciation to happen are many. Calmness, mindfulness, spaciousness, Kindness, befriending. These are all, I mean, you can feel that, feel that in your own experience. That when those conditions are present, have you noticed how much less sticky everything is? That when, when the conditions of agitation or anxiety are present, or, or, or aversion, you know, like a thought arises or a sight arises and everything is ripe, isn't it, for clinging? We just kind of glom right onto everything, you know. That, I'm aversive to that, and I hate that, and I just like that. Because it's like all the conditions are just right for clinging and identification to take place. So what happens in the practice much more is the cultivation of the conditions that allow for letting to go to happen. I'm actually not doing it, but I'm also not helpless in this. Because there's so much in the way through intention through awareness, that those conditions of letting go are cultivated moment to moment in our lives. The third refrain, 
which again I've mentioned, is to contemplate the body in the body. It's an attitude of non-identification. To the extent that is necessary for bare knowledge and mindfulness. It is really seeing the difference between, you know, because we, we've been contemplating the body through our lives, haven't we? I mean, we contemplate our body in the company of others, you know, our doctors and our dentists, you know, and we contemplate the body. You know, we've been contemplating our thoughts through our lives, haven't we? This is not new to us. But often we contemplate the body, mind, our lives, not through the eyes of mindfulness, but much more through the eyes, actually, of obsession. How I need things to be, how I want things to be, how things should be, what I can accept, what I cannot accept. So it is not even in these four foundations of mindfulness that there's sometime, somehow new, new, a new foundation. So the same foundations, but of course the lens of changing to the contemplate to the extent that is necessary for bare knowledge and mindfulness. And I think this is one of those huge shifts out of obsession, out of the stories, into the direct connection with the body, with mind, with life as it is, moment to moment, doesn't matter its history, doesn't matter its future. This is so huge because we see as human beings that, you know, what kind of storytelling machines we are, you know, how kind of, we have a commentary about everything, don't we? I mean, you know, we go through life, you know, just as this constant commentator, um, you know, about, you know, about the food, about, you know, and other people, about the sights, the sounds, the story just keeps going on and we have a pretty long and complex story about ourselves. And actually what we see, that when we look at life through the eyes of that story, things get kind of rigid and fixed. Things get kind of rigid and fixed. And we come to believe this is the way I am, or this is the way you are. Have you ever noticed, and this happens you know, so much on retreats, because we have this very weird environment of this kind of close interaction without the language to figure things out. You know, so you see the person in front of you, you know, who, who takes the last potato wedge. Well, what do you see when you next see that person? Do you see a person in all the fullness of their complexity as a human being, their joys and their sorrows? Or do you see the person who took the last potato wedge? And how it becomes a sort of life sentence, you know. That's who they are. Now, now think about how many things we do with this within life and how we apply that to ourselves. This happened or this arose I did, or this occurred. Now this is who I am. This is not contemplating to the extent that is necessary for bare knowledge and mindfulness. The person takes the last potato wedge, the last potato wedge is gone, that person's moving on, we're moving on. We're not actually fixing, solidifying everything in place. I think this is in a way the great art and the great skill of mindfulness. As the, as the Buddha put it, you know, in, in the seeing, there is just the seeing. In the hearing, just the hearing. In the thinking, just the thinking. In the sensing, 
just the sensing. Not being so entranced by all the complexity of the story that is put on top of it, because that actually is a kind of closed door. It's a sort of closed book. It's a closed story. In many ways, we almost want to do that, because it, it, it can almost feel that if we have everything and everybody in this world sort of solidified and known through a certain view or a certain story, it was somehow protected. But actually, and what it, it's often a way of trying to control the world, isn't it? I know you. I know myself. It's often a way of trying to control the world. But what we see is that we also suffocate our capacity to be surprised. And it really strikes me in this life that our, our real capacity to deepen as a human being is so powerfully linked to our capacity to be surprised. To have a, that quality of openness, that sense of not knowing, not everything being fixed. The last of the encouragements that I want to pick up on in this discourse is, is the way that there's this encouragement to contemplate the arising and passing of all things. Thoughts, sensations, experience, sight, sounds, to see their arising, their birth and their death, their arising and their fading, directly experiencing this moment to moment can have such a powerful impact upon the habit of the mind to hold and to make life stand still in certain ways, a tendency that creates so much struggle. Seeing this flow of experience without grasping, without the story superimposed upon it, without the aversion, without the craving, Somehow this liberates not only the world and life and other people to be as they are. Somehow that capacity also liberates us to be seen anew, to be seen freshly, to change, to change. And sometimes in ways that surprises us. Reshaping the paradigm of our experience through the reshaping of the heart through understanding. For me, this is really what wise mindfulness is deeply concerned with in bringing about the end of suffering through understanding how it comes into being, through bringing about the end of suffering through kindness, through compassion, through that freedom to, to let go. If we just take a moment quietly together and then we'll have a walking period. 